Chapter 3 of The Adventures of Captain Hatteras, Part 2, The Field of Ice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jack Sazalski, Towson, Maryland. The Adventures of Captain Hatteras, Part 2, The Field of Ice, by Jules Verne. Chapter 3, A Seventeen Days' March. These first words of Altamont had completely changed the whole aspect of affairs, but his communication was still incomplete, and after giving him a little rest, the doctor undertook the task of conversing again with him, putting his questions in such a form that a movement of the head or eyes would be a sufficient answer. He soon ascertained that the porpoise was a three-mast American ship from New York, wrecked on the ice, with provisions and combustibles in abundance still on a board, and that though she had been thrown on her side, she had not gone to pieces, and there was every chance of saving her cargo. Altamont and his crew had left her two months previously, taking the longboat with them on a sledge. They intended to get to Smith Sound and reach some whaler that would take them back to America, but one after another succumbed to fatigue and illness, till at last Altamont and two men were all that remained out of thirty, and truly he had survived by a providential miracle while his two companions already lay beside him in the sleep of death. Hatteras wished to know why the porpoise had come so far north, and learned in reply that she had been irresistibly driven there by the ice. But his anxious fears were not satisfied with this explanation, and he asked further what was the purpose of his voyage. Altamont said he wanted to make the Northwest Passage, and this appeared to content the jealous Englishman, for he made no more reference to the subject. Well, said the doctor, it strikes me that instead of trying to get to Baffin's Bay, our best plan would be to go in search of the porpoise, for here lies a ship a full third of the distance nearer, and more than that, stocked with everything necessary for winter quarters. I see no other course open to us, replied Bell. And the sooner we go, the better, added Johnson, for the time we allow ourselves must depend on our provisions. You are right, Johnson, returned the doctor. If we start tomorrow, we must reach the porpoise by the 15th of March unless we mean to die of starvation. What do you say, Hatteras? Let us make preparations immediately, but perhaps the route may be longer than we suppose. How can that be, Captain? The man seems quite sure of the position of his ship, said the doctor. But suppose the ice field should have drifted like ours. Here, Aldemont, who was listening attentively, made a sign that he wished to speak, and after much difficulty, he succeeded in telling the doctor that the porpoise had struck on rocks near the coast, and that it was impossible for her to move. This was reassuring information, though it cut off all hope of returning to Europe, unless Bell could construct a smaller ship out of the wreck. No time was lost in getting ready to start. The sledge was the principal thing, as it needed thorough repair. There was plenty of wood, and profiting by the experience they had recently had of this mode of transit, several improvements were made by Bell. Inside, a sort of couch was laid for the American, and covered over with the tent. The small stock of provisions did not add much to the weight, but to make up for the deficiency, as much wood was piled upon it as it could hold. The doctor did the packing and made an exact calculation of how long their stores would last. 
he found that by allowing three-quarter rations to each man and full rations to the dogs, they might hold out for three weeks. Towards seven in the morning, they felt so worn out that they were obliged to give up work for the night. But before lying down to sleep, they heaped up the wood in the stove and made a roaring fire, determined to allow themselves this parting luxury. As they gathered round it, basking in the unaccustomed heat and enjoying their hot coffee and biscuits and pemmican, they became quite cheerful and forgot all their sufferings. About seven in the morning they set to work again, and by three in the afternoon everything was ready. It was almost dark, for though the sun had reappeared above the horizon since the 31st of January, his light was feeble and of short duration. Happily, the moon would rise about half-past six, and her soft beams would give sufficient light to show the road. The parting moment came. Altamont was overjoyed at the idea of starting, though the jolting would necessarily increase his sufferings, for the doctor would find on board the medicines he required for his cure. They lifted him onto the sledge and laid him as comfortably as possible, then harnessed the dogs, including Duke. One final look towards the icy bed where the forward had been, and the little party set out for the porpoise. Bell was scout as before. The doctor and Johnson took each a side of the sledge and lent a helping hand when necessary, while Hatteras walked behind to keep all in the right track. They got on pretty quickly, for the weather was good and the ice smooth and hard, allowing the sledge to glide easily along. Yet the temperature was so low that men and dogs were soon panting and had often to stop and take breath. About seven the moon shone out and irradiated the whole horizon. Far as the eye could see, there was nothing visible but a wide-stretching level plain of ice without a solitary hummock or patch to relieve the uniformity. As the doctor remarked to his companion, it looked like some vast, monotonous desert. Aye, Mr. Clawbonny, it is a desert, but we shan't die of thirst in it at any rate. That's a comfort, certainly, but I'll tell you one thing. It proves, Johnson, we must be a great distance from any coast. The nearer the coast, the more numerous the icebergs in general, and you see there is not one in sight. The horizon is rather misty, though. So it is, but ever since we started, we have been on this same interminable ice field. Do you know, Mr. Clawbonny, that smooth as this ice is, we are going over the most dangerous ground. Fathomless abysses lie beneath our feet. That's true enough, but they won't engulf us. This white sheet over them is pretty tough, I can tell you. It is always getting thicker, too. For in these latitudes, it snows nine days out of ten, even in April and May. Aye, and in June as well. The ice here, in some parts, cannot be less than between 30 and 40 feet thick. That sounds reassuring at all events, said Johnson. Yes, we're not like the skaters on the serpentine, always in danger of falling through. This ice is strong enough to bear the weight of the Custom House in Liverpool, or the Houses of Parliament in Westminster. Can they reckon pretty nearly what ice will bear, Mr. Clawbonny? asked the old sailor, always eager for information. What can't be reckoned nowadays? Yes, ice two inches thick will bear a man, three and a half inches, a man on horseback, five inches, an eight-pounder, eight inches, field artillery, and ten inches, a whole army. 
It is difficult to conceive of such a power of resistance, but you were speaking of the incessant snow just now, and I cannot help wondering where it comes from, for the water all round is frozen, and what makes the clouds? That's a natural enough question, but my notion is that nearly all the snow or rain that we get here comes from the temperate zones. I fancy each of those snowflakes was originally a drop of water in some river, caught up by evaporation into the air, and wafted over here in the shape of clouds, so that it is not impossible that when we quench our thirst with the melted snow, we're actually drinking from the very rivers of our own native land. Just at this moment, the conversation was interrupted by Hatteras, who called out that they were getting out of the straight line. The increasing mist made it difficult to keep together, and at last, about eight o'clock, they determined to come to a halt as they had gone fifteen miles. The tent was put up and the stove lighted, and after their usual supper they lay down and slept comfortably till morning. The calm atmosphere was highly favorable, for though the cold became intense and the mercury was always frozen in the thermometer, they found no difficulty in continuing their route, confirming the truth of Parry's assertion that any man suitably clad may walk abroad with impunity in the lowest temperature, provided there is no wind, while on the other hand, the least breeze would make the skin smart acutely, bring on violent headache which would soon end in death. On the 5th of March, a peculiar phenomenon occurred. The sky was perfectly clear and glittering with stars, when suddenly snow began to fall thick and fast. Though there was not a cloud in the heavens, and through the white flakes the constellations could be seen shining. This curious display lasted two hours and ceased before the doctor could arrive at any satisfactory conclusion as to its cause. The moon had ended her last quarter, and complete darkness prevailed now for seventeen hours out of the twenty-four. The travelers had to fasten themselves together with a long rope to avoid getting separated, and it was all but impossible to pursue the right course. Moreover, the brave fellows, in spite of their iron will, began to show signs of fatigue. Halts became more frequent, and yet every hour was precious, for the provisions were rapidly coming to an end. Hatteras hardly knew what to think, as day after day went on without apparent result, and he asked himself sometimes whether the porpoise had any actual existence except in Altamont's fevered brain, and more than once the idea even came into his head that perhaps national hatred might have induced the American to drag them along with himself to certain death. He told the doctor his suppositions, who rejected them absolutely, and laid them down to the score of the unhappy rivalry that had risen already between the two captains. On the 14th of March, after 16 days' march, the little party found themselves only yet in the 82-degree latitude. Their strength was exhausted, and they had a hundred miles more to go. To increase their sufferings, rations had to be still further reduced. Each man must be content with a fourth part to allow the dogs their full quantity. Unfortunately, they could not rely at all on their guns, for only seven charges of powder were left, and six balls. They had fired at several hares and foxes on the road already, but unsuccessfully. However, on the 15th, the doctor was fortunate enough to surprise a seal basking on the ice, 
and after several shots, the animal was captured and killed. Johnson soon had it skinned and cut in pieces, but it was so lean that it was worthless as food, unless its captors would drink the oil like the Eskimos. The doctor was bold enough to make the attempt, but failed in spite of himself. Next day, several icebergs and hummocks were noticed on the horizon. Was this a sign that land was near, or was it some ice field that had broken up? It was difficult to know what to surmise. On arriving at the first of these hummocks, travelers set to work to make a cave where they could rest more comfortably than in the tent, and after three hours' persevering toil, were able to light their stove and lie down beside it to stretch their weary limbs. End of chapter 3. Recording by Jack Zazelski, Towson, Maryland.